0: I'm Kate Remington, catching up with Chris Madigan, the composer of Cuphead, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about Cuphead, The Delicious Last Course, and Chris, it's great to have a chance to talk again.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's been uh, about four, four and a half years, I guess, since
0: the last
1: time, probably, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think so, and the original Cuphead soundtrack just blew everybody away, and this one, The Delicious Last Course, is kind of doing the same thing. But you had a chance to really kind of expand the musical world that that you brought into the soundtrack, and just briefly, the story: Cuphead and Mugman are back, and they need to get the the ingredients for a a recipe from Chef Saltbaker so that uh, Miss Chalice can stay here in our world and not be a ghost permanently. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's it's kind of a, a very difficult quest, but. Right off the bat, I'm curious, and I've probably gotten this question a lot, but what are some of the challenges with writing music for a sequel, you know, trying to use music that you've written before, or at least, you know, use that as a stepping stone?
1: I mean, for me, the big challenge is always just to come up with a good tune in the first place. Uh, In the first game, that was, you know, other than sort of trying to learn on the fly, it also like trying to write good music, because I don't think, I can't imagine that ever gets really easy for anyone. So just kind of you know, sequel or not, trying to come up with uh, fun tunes was the kind of the first challenge. And then in this one, there was a lot of areas that, when the first game came out, we sort of knew that we didn't explore. And then as you know, it was originally supposed to come out in 2018, and got you know, classic MDHR got delayed, and then COVID really threw a wrench into things, obviously. So it you know, but that gave gave me personally a lot more time to sort of delve into some other areas and other styles of things that that fit maybe uh, with the era but uh didn't make it onto the first game so and that you know the main one obviously is the i knew i knew when we started this game that i wanted to do a bit more of an orchestral thing early disney early hollywood sound and and that sort of expanded as the game went on and then there's you know some other interesting stylistic things in the dlc that uh that came up over the course of the past few years.
0: I I, yeah, I love all the different styles. I mean, I am a huge huge fan of Stefan Grapelli and Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France style. And I just love how you reimagined the sound of Inkwell Isle. You know, kind of the home area where you can get provisions and then start your next mission and stuff like that. Um, I I wish you'd write a whole album of music <laughs> like, of Inkwell Island Four type music. Right, with specific musicians in mind or at that point was it just kind of more abstract
1: there was a few specific musicians like um the gentleman who plays uh fiddle on those hot club of france inspired tracks he also plays on uh the high noon hoopla uh track Plays fiddle on that uh drew jureka uh he is fantastic and he was uh, i knew that he was going to be I, I was kind of writing I was writing for that ensemble, but, you know, he was sort of involved from pretty early on because I was bouncing a lot of, you know, things off of him and questions and, and he knows that stuff inside and out. And so he kind of helped me, you know, refine the style a bit. And he was like, check out, you know, check out these recordings. And uh, he sort of helped put together that particular group too. He was like, you should choose these players. And uh, so, so in that particular case, I mean, I knew I was writing for that, that instrumentation uh fiddle bass lead guitar and two rhythm guitars um and then drew was kind of there from the beginning but
0: yeah there's just something so distinctive about that sound it's like you know scott joplin's regs they're like instantly recognizable so did you spend a lot of time listening to you know stefan grappelli and django reinhardt and recordings from that era just to kind of get a baseline for for how it should sound
1: oh yeah, yeah definitely that was uh and that was another thing I knew that that was going to be, uh, you know, the orchestral thing. And I wanted more organ on this album. And also early on, I kind of knew that I wanted uh, that, you know, the fiddle and the guitar sound in general, I wanted it to be sort of its own character on, uh, on the soundtrack. So um, yeah, like I was listening to a lot of that uh, from fairly early on and Joe Venuti too. I mean, much like the first game, a lot of this was really doing, once I decided I wanted to do a style is really doing a deep dive into it and trying to learn as much as possible about, uh, you know, doing it correctly and, and the sound and the um, just the historical context of everything.
0: Sure. Uh, at the very end of uh, the album on your Bandcamp site, you've got this really wonderful list of credits and... I, I can kind of hear some of the influences—Arnold Schoenberg and Ravel and Mahler—and then Max Steiner with that classic Hollywood sound. And so it must have been a fun experience to know that you were writing for an orchestra and have this incredible palette and all these composers that you could draw on for, you know, for inspiration.
1: Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, it's like it's nice because doing, you know, doing the research. Uh, often just involves watching a bunch of movies so which is not a bad uh, bad way to do research but um, yeah there definitely that was something that was there from the beginning and just sort of organically happened but um yeah there's a number of a number of pretty new influences on this soundtrack for sure
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm curious about the scope of of the soundtrack, because it's it's massive and it covers such a huge range. Did that kind of happen organically since the game was taking longer and longer to finally
1: ship? Oh, definitely. It was a pretty organic um, process. And, you know, we had decided, like, all of these things were sort of in place before COVID happened, which made um uh, record, you know, we had decided to record a fifty plus person orchestra, and we're kind of committed to that idea. and then we weren't allowed to get people in groups larger than ten. So we kind of had to work around that uh, um that sort of restriction and, and challenge for sure.
0: well, how did you even manage that? It sounds like it just must have been a a huge logistical nightmare.
1: uh yeah, it was quite a it was a challenge. um part of it was just, Literally, the, the the scheduling of it was was extremely difficult. Although fortunately, I mean, not fortunately, but, uh, you know, most of the musicians didn't have much going on work wise. So like it was easy, you know, it was easy enough to schedule to find people who were available to do it. But um, yeah, the big challenge really was it was extremely important that we kept everyone safe and that we kept. Um, You know, if you're in a situation where you're expected to play something and you don't feel comfortable, also that's bad. So it was like keep everyone safe, but also keep everyone feeling comfortable there. So we had talked about once restrictions had kind of opened, like whether it's worth trying to get everyone on a giant stage really spaced out, which just logistically didn't it would have been too big, like it would have been too spaced out to be to really work. So that was kind of when. A lot of this came down from our engineer, Jeremy Darby, who did an incredible job. Uh, and he was sort of the one who did the organizing of how we were going to do these things. So, you know, we knew the most people we could get in a room in most situations was 10, um, like legally and safely. Um, so we were like, okay, so we're going to do 10 people at a time. Every, you know, we did testing, we had a nurse there, I did testing for every session before people were allowed in the building. Uh, as you see in the behind-the-scenes videos, um, there's separation between everybody. We had uh, a couple uh, dental-grade air purifiers running all the time. Between every session, everyone had to leave, and we UV'd the whole room. Uh, obviously, masking protocols sort of remained in place. So, So it, it was just f- for the safety of the musicians and for our own just you know feeling good about the project we try you really try to do it as safely as we could do it and nobody got sick during the recording of it which we're happy to happy to say and you know we did end up having to we did all of the string stuff first and the rhythm section stuff first and then whatever it was um last summer if that was omicron or whatever variation that was delta maybe there was kind of another wave and and that was just before uh, in Toronto anyway, sort of just before, I guess first doses were available um, of the vaccine. So we ended up um, canceling all of the sessions of winds and brass, cause that's sort of, you know, the aerosols in the air kind of thing. And we rescheduled those uh, later in the summer uh, when uh, it was, you know, the spike was going down and when people had had vaccinations and it felt, again, felt comfortable being there. so. And which again, that was its own logistical challenge because we had booked, we had three different studios on the go. We were, cause we wanted to record depending on which, which it was, we wanted to record strings in a specific studio that had a nice sound. We wanted to record the rhythm section in the specific studio that had, you know, a sound for them. So we had, you know, three different things, three different studio spaces on the go. And so canceling all the stuff that we had booked and then rescheduling those spaces with those people. Fortunately, that was not my job, but uh, uh, that was a a big challenge as well. And then from uh, an engineering standpoint, say you're recording 50 people on a stage and you have just hypothetically one mic in the middle of the stage, then you have one audio input to deal with. Whereas if you record that same piece of music, but with 10 people at a time, then you have five times as much audio information to weed through and mix together. So... Once we had everyone recorded, then the weeding through process that Jeremy had to do just to even sort of start mixing, it uh, was weeks and weeks of work um, just to sort of narrow down the, and we had, he can give you the numbers. I think he's going to do, he wants to do some sort of uh, video or post about the actual, like the recording process, but we had to get a procure. I think it was like the cart itself costs about seven grand. Get a, a hdx card for pro tools because we had maxed out the amount of tracks that pro tools can handle which was just because of the way that we had to stack everything so so kudos to jeremy for doing all of that and then making it sound as cohesive uh, as it sounds like i think you can listen to the soundtrack and you would never know the uh challenges associated with <laughs> with with that process 10 years and we look back on this it's gonna be like how did we do that
0: oh yeah absolutely yeah. and and you're abs and you're right i've you know i've listened i spent a lot of time listening to the soundtrack by itself and then in the game too and i you would just assume that everybody was there in the studio all at the same time because the way they you know they're able to like play off each other and even the different ensembles like the winds and the strings they they blend perfectly together so Jeremy Mm -hmm. must be some sort of a wizard. I mean, he just really.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's also, I mean, we, you know, it's a testament to the musicians. Sure. Yeah. Um, You know, we explained to them, like, this is who you're playing with. And if if we already had that person recorded, then they would play along with that track. But if they were laying down the first track, they have no idea what else is going on. So um, the musicians we had were uh, phenomenal and were able to work under uh, also very strange circumstances.
0: Yeah. And it's got to be weird for them because, I mean, you know, you're you're in an orchestra and the the relation, the physical relationship that the players have with each other, you know, you're you're looking, you're making eye contact and you're watching body language and all of that. And they didn't have that. So it's really incredible that they were able to get this sound without all of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Even in in the the room that they were all in there, they were still separated uh, in a way which would have been abnormal. Uh, as not not even not recording with the other you know uh four fifths of the orchestra but they themselves were were spread out uh in an, in a kind of an awkward manner so but that was that was one of the reasons we really wanted to do i mean we wanted to do that anyways because the first few behind the scenes videos from the first game we did were uh there was a lot of positive feedback from those so the studio was like okay we should really do some good ones for this too but we also really wanted to just show the process like this is how we did this and uh you know, it's interesting to see, I guess. But, well, yeah. it,
0: it it is. And it's interesting to hear how you took care of it, because every composer that I've talked with during the pandemic comes at things a different way. And I've even heard of some composers sending the very same mic to all of the singers in the chorus and then they record at home. And send their files and then send the mic on to the next singer so that they have a consistent sound that way. And I know you guys didn't have to go to quite that extreme, but um the the singers that you lined up for this are just great. I mean they, they sound like the Andrew Sisters. They're just so great. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that was what we were going for. Andrew Sisters, Boswell Sisters, which is technically a bit closer to the era. But yeah, it's I mean, we didn't have to send anything anywhere also because everyone except two of the barbershop singers were located in toronto oh good so it was you know we were able to bring people in and they were able to work together but uh yeah the the pool of talent in this city is really phenomenal
2: delicious last course, for oh, that delicious last course, it's our cakes and pies Single meal to help me tell this meal is a delicious last course. A delicious last course. A delicious last course. Such a gallant heart to make the wonder talk. For the delicious last course. Using recipes to get necessities for the delicious last course. With a wink and a soy-
0: When we talked about the first game, uh, you said you used members of Toronto's Boss brass, and that's why the sound of of that it's just so so tight because they've been playing together for years and years and years. Did you bring any of them back for this soundtrack too?
1: Everybody who played on the first game, almost all of them are back with a couple of exceptions. Uh, some people moved out of town. Some people were busy doing other things or weren't available. But yeah, I think we basically. Uh, invited um, basically everyone who uh, was on the first soundtrack back aside from the fact that they were the right players in the first place it's you know it's not in theory it's not a separate game it's still supposed to be a continuation from the first so we wanted a bit of continuity there and uh and also those players knew when they did the first game they didn't know what they were getting into I think <laughs> and so when they came back to do this one they knew to expect uh very fast charts uh with lots of notes and uh, were a bit less surprised. Uh, by that by that prospect
0: Gosh, you really pushed them. I mean, they just (laughs) pulled out all the stops with this. And it's kind of like the musical equivalent of playing the game, I would think, for them, because the game is just so hard. Mm -hmm. And so they probably felt like they had just beat a boss when they got all the way through one of the tracks. So
1: I think so. I mean, uh, ideally, I think my writing, I I definitely learned a lot from the first game, uh, just writing wise. So ideally the writing is a bit more like it's still fast and challenging but ideally it lays in most cases it lays a bit better on the instruments i was a bit more cognizant of that this time so so in theory maybe the parts are a bit not easier but they're more uh more idiomatic to the instruments hopefully
0: yeah sure yeah well you're credited in the percussion section so what what instruments did you play
1: I played a lot of the percussion, if only because I happened to be in the studio all the time, and it was, you know, easy for me. I knew what sounds I wanted. I didn't play any of the timpani. That was my friend Andrew Rasmus doing that. Uh, most of the Brazilian percussion was done by Alan Hetherington, who did it on the first game. Uh, my buddy Dan played some percussion. Dan Murphy uh, did some marimba. We did the the two marimba four marimba thing on the recipe from his chalice. Uh, we o- overdubbed ourselves, um, but I did uh, I did most of it. Just for expediency's sake, more than anything. So,
0: <laughs> well, it must have been kind of fun, though. I remember at the at Magfest, you sat in with the orchestra. Uh, console was playing some of the music from the first Cuphead, and I don't know. It must be kind of fun to just be in the middle of it.
1: Oh, it was great. Yeah, that's a fun. Uh, that video is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if anyone wants to see it. But yeah, I played. Uh, uh, I think one, one or two tracks with them, and yeah, it was it was a blast.
0: Let's talk about the uh, the whole um, uh, King of Games suite. Because that is so interesting, embedded in the rest of these, you know, big band sounds. And it gave you a chance to kind of use your classical chops, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, that King of Games, once they started were showing me that, I, it was pretty obvious right off the bat that it called for something different. And uh, one of the cartoons that I had watched and enjoyed was, I believe it's just called, old, it's the one of the old King Cole cartoons from that era. And it's, that's got one of the, the, the classic You know vocal intro with the with the choir and things so i kind of wanted to i wanted to make that um whole section kind of its own standalone sort of cartoon in a sense and at the at the time going in like 20 2018 to you know a couple years ago i'd been studying baroque counterpoint with uh, a great teacher in toronto sasha Rapport, and uh so i you know it kind of gave me an opportunity to put some of that a little bit of that into uh into use i would have you know i would have liked to have written something a bit more grand grandiose a bit more of a fugue of some sort but uh but i think that you know the sounds are there and i like I, it's an interesting thing because it's it's cartoony but it still has that sort of baroque vibe and um yeah i like i like that section a lot and it does it is pretty different
0: me of is the um the music that William Walton wrote for the Olivier Henry V it sounds a little bit like it's from uh the Renaissance or or early music but it's got a 20th century sensibility to it so it's kind of like this fusion of you know two eras and stuff
1: yeah I, I mean I definitely am not able to write something that is so authentic and even within within that piece I think there's elements uh, there's a bit of Renaissance and there's a bit of Baroque and probably there's some some more classical era kind of things. Like it's not really, I wrote what I wanted to write, but it's definitely not, if you like, you give it to a music theorist, they would be like, what is this? <laughs> so, but, but I think it suits the, you know, I think it suits the the vibe of the game. And, you know, I wanted some harpsichord in there. And uh, yeah.
0: So is there, are, are there any tricks to writing for harpsichord that you wouldn't necessarily use for writing for any other keyboard?
1: Yeah, I mean, we had a really good, um, the gentleman who played uh he played or the harpsichord and the organ on on the game and so he did you know i would give him the harpsichord parts and he he gave me some feedback on them but he definitely was able to he laid them down as more or less as i had written them so but i i didn't yeah i did not spend enough time with the proper harpsichord as i probably should have but oh well <laughs> yeah. well that's
0: that's the nice thing about writing you know for a cuphead game it doesn't have to be really authentic and no, it just no. need you just need that tiny little flavoring, I guess, of of that
1: sort of thing. I think that's more it. That's a good that's a good term for it. Like getting the flavor of something different, but it it's not it's never gonna sound like Bach. And that's you know, that's fine. It, even if I actually was able to write like that, it might not that might not fit in the game as well. Uh anyway. So yeah.
0: Besides the harpsichord, which isn't all that unusual, but you you really were able to track down some super unusual instruments like the C melody sax and how how did you find those in the first place
1: uh i mean that's an instrument that that you know comes up in in research um and it was that was a popular they had made a lot of those i believe in the 20s and 30s and i think one of the reasons that that saxophone in, had a bit of a popularity was that it was not a non transposing instrument so you could if you have a piano like that was a time of when piano sheet music was very popular. And so you could play a melody from a piano sheet music work without having to worry about transposing it. So I think I think that was why that instrument was popular at that time. I'm not, it's unclear to me why it lost popularity, but it isn't, it has a unique sound. And I just knew that I wanted to write for that particular instrument. So that's the, the sax one that's featured on Bootlegger Boogie. And so I asked Vern Dorge, who I was gonna approach to play it, um, you know, if he knew uh where he where I could get one of those, and or what, you know, if if he if he was able to procure one. And he ended up finding two. And then Colleen Allen, who uh plays um a lot of more of the more of the high sax stuff on a lot of the tunes, she she has a soprano C melody saxophone, which is the strangest instrument (laughs) extremely rare so so it went from having you know i was looking for one c melody saxophone to i had three at my disposal so i think all all three of them are in snow cult scuffle and there's that sort of not clarinetty uh but like more of a more nasally clarinet kind of sound that you hear in snow cult scuffle and that's calling on the c melody soprano And it just, you know, that was something I wasn't looking for that, but then it it came across my path and I was kind of like, okay, we should definitely make use of that because it's interesting and it's, it is of the era. So yeah, but the C the C melody is now not, it's not really a common thing, unfortunately.
0: Well, maybe it's going to be now. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe this will hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I really love the cult the scuffle. It's just the the, the instrumentation and the, the little bells in there to make it sound a little bit snowy and the brass are just incredible. And I'm wondering how you and uh, the guys at MDHR worked on deciding what tracks were going to go with what bosses. Was this one where you could see initially from gameplay or, or um, concept art that that would be a good fit?
1: The first game, we did not do much um, writing for specific bosses. I think they were just, we were both from both sides, visually and musically trying to put as many ideas down as possible. And so what happened a lot on the first game was um, that I would present them with a a mock-up of a track and then Chad would say, oh, this would go good uh, with this boss. And then I might, in some cases, like um, a good example is the Phantom Express where he's like, this will, this sounds like the beat of this tune sounds like it would be good for the train boss. So then I added some, some trainy kind of sounds to it and made it sort of retrofitted it to fit that boss. But with not too many, you know, like the the devil's music from the first game is written for the devil. Um, there's a few others specifically, but in general, a lot of those weren't written for those specific bosses. They were matched up after the fact. Whereas in this game, I think because they're sort of end of the beam the time uh i was really uh cognizant about trying to write for each specific boss in particular with with the exception there were two tunes that were not so much leftovers but they were just ideas that were floating around that never got used on the first game and th- those are you know arguably the two most original cuphead sounding tunes on the soundtrack which are bootlegger boogie and doggone dogfight and and both of those you know we ended up also retrofitting to fit those bosses a bit better but everything else in this game was written specifically for the boss that it uh, accompanies and so it's not like it's not like on the first game i didn't have access to the visuals but in this one i think there was just a more concerted effort to really um, match those up in the creative process and so so for snow cult scuffle i thought it would be funny to have uh, I wanted to. I still wanted to write another uh, Brazilian tune, but less of a, a samba parade tune and more of a choro kind of tune. And and it was like, well, where is this going to fit in this thing? And then I, you know, I thought it would be funny to do like a cold weather choro. Uh, so that's kind of why that tune. You know, it's an interesting combination for that uh, for that boss.
0: Yeah, yeah, it super is, and I can see now how how well your music for the bosses really does fit them because high noon hoopla is is great and it gave you a chance to write some western swing and (laughs) there's a crazy horse boss and so uh you've got the little trumpet whinnies and stuff and so yeah (laughs) that must have been a fun one to write
1: that was fun and that's definitely one of my favorite uh i think one of my favorite tunes on the on the soundtrack for sure What I like about this, uh, these tunes a lot too um, is they're a bit more concise than the first game. Like, I think that they, you know, I, the first game, there's a few tunes that maybe went on a little too long and, and it doesn't it didn't matter in, in the sense of, it's the same with this game. Like the player is either, uh, has beaten the boss or is dead within a minute and a yep. half. So it doesn't matter <laughs> how much longer the tune goes on. But to sit down and listen to them, there are definitely some tunes on the first soundtrack that I would trim some stuff off of. And in this one, generally they're all a bit shorter and I think they're the songwriting itself is a bit more concise because like snow cold scuffle is barely three minutes I think Mm -hmm. (laughs) so
0: but yeah you're right I mean it's just that was the 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 frustrating thing for me and thank goodness there's a soundtrack because otherwise I would never hear the whole thing because I just die so regularly and so frequently that um I never hear the I never hear the whole thing so um so I'm just I'm glad the soundtrack exists and so
1: I mean, yeah, so uh, I'm also happy that it's, uh, well, sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, you you mentioned that one of the things you wanted to do as you put the soundtrack together was to create a kind of a a story arc or some lore for the game. And why did you think that was important?
1: It' was a little bit of a personal challenge, I think, in a sense. You know, I don't know when we are going to be revisiting this game, like, you know, it's, it seemed like, I was trying to figure out a way to maybe tie a bow on Cuphead in a sense also. And it was kind of easier to start from scratch with this DLC and try to create something that uh, sort of stands on its own and tells a bit of a story within that, within DLC, but then also over the course of the whole, both games, which is whatever, four and a half hours of music, or it's quite a lot. Um, and it was also a bit of a challenge because it's not really a story-driven game in, in many contexts. Like, there's obviously a story, but um, it's not—it's not much of a story, realistically. So I, you know, it was a challenge. Like, how can I—I want to create these themes, and I want to have, you know, um, with a story arc that is maybe—it's maybe its maybe very I, I don't know if it like comes off particularly well. But I think if you listen to it, uh, I think it's the first, you know, five or six tracks. And then the last five or six tracks um those are the ones that really have the sort of this the more thematic elements the most of the boss tunes and the king of game stuff is kind of standalone but the uh, salt baker stuff and the the you know the more orchestral things um that definitely i did my best to really kind of create uh a dramatic arc there that has leitmotifs and themes and things that do come back from the first game but also things that are specific only to the dlc and i kind of liken it to uh uh you know like you can watch the whole x-files or you can watch the x-files that only have like the the lore episodes and you can get rid of the standalone episodes and and then the, the story will still make sense and that's kind of what i was thinking with this like there are going to be standalone tunes but then there's going to be you know the opening cutscene and the tutorial music and then the whole ending sequence like that's kind of part of an arc of some sort so and it was it was just a challenge to challenge to myself to try and do that for a run and gun game that's not <laughs> a, that's not a big cinematic experience realistically
0: yeah yeah that's right and also you know the player can play things out of uh out of context too so it's you don't really know you know it's not like you're on a rail and you know what's going to happen next for the player cuz they can kind of mix things up and um mm-hmm. and do that too. So so that's a really interesting idea and the game really ends up taking kind of a a spooky turn um where all of a sudden you've got this weird dream sequence. Um <laughs> one hell of a dream and yeah. it's it's not it it's kind of an outlier for for boss battle music too cuz it's so much quieter, and so I'd, I'd love for you to, to tell me a little bit about that one.
1: I mean, that that's also one of my favorite tracks on the game, and yeah, it's it kind of is a bit of a standalone thing, in a sense. I wanted to do something again, like I hopefully that it, um I think it's still, you know, it's not too modern sounding. You know, I think it's it you can find that it, it could have been written in a in an earlier twentieth century context. But yeah, that was just that there was this harp riff that I kind of had in my head one day and then I wrote it down and then kind of came out of that. And then Chad needed, they were like, we're into this nightmare fight. And then when I realized that it was the devil, I was like, okay, well, let's incorporate the devil themes from The Last Boss. And yeah, that tune is a bit more just about atmosphere, but it still has the sort of incessant like bump, bump, bump bump going through it. and and I love the way that uh, it got programmed in the game where it doesn't stop when you when you die, like it just keeps looping, which it really adds to the eeriness of it. And and that's you know that's uh, one of the uh, speaking of uh, standout musicians on on the soundtrack, uh, Sonia Ng, who played that harp part. Um, it very harp is a very strange instrument to write for uh it's challenging and it's you know um writing stuff that's really chromatic is not really advised i don't think and and the whole that whole riff keeps dropping down by semitone after semitone and you know i think if when you look at like um revel scores and things like that he's got these heart parts that are sp- supposed to sound kind of like one player but he has to use two players because one of them will have to change the change the pedals while the other one picks up the line and like that's just sort of the nature of the instrument and so I wrote I wrote this part and it was like this is how I wanted it to sound but I told her we can break it up however you want in the session we'll do whatever two bars and then do you know the full bars four and five and then do seven and eight kind of thing if you want um just and then we'll overdub the other sections and and she came in and played what I thought was uh impossible to play heart part uh top to bottom in one take and uh and we were sitting in the booth and i was we were just like floored and uh it was yeah so that was uh that was really something so that that uh harp on that is, is beautiful and then and then i happened to be in it's like, again one of those sort of happy uh accidents i was in uh the b room at canterbury where we did the bulk of the recording uh sort of doing doing some mixing and then i heard this um I thought it was a theremin at the time uh coming from the other room and I was like that whoever's playing that sounds phenomenal and I went and checked it out and it was uh this uh group called Quartetto Gelato and they're a uh, local uh, fantastic quartet and Colin Mayer, who plays oboe in that group uh, is apparently also a musical saw virtuoso so so I was uh and I was, it was funny because I realized then that I also I had, I had met Colin before. And I was like, oh yeah, Colin, I know Colin. But I didn't realize that he played Saw. So that was where this, you know, we had already sort of done that tune. And I was like, I think we need to replace uh, this one section with Saw because it's because it's the right sound for that. Uh. So that's Colin playing Saw on, uh, on the back half of One Hell of a Dream. And it's, you know, it sounds, it's beautiful.
0: that's amazing i thought it was a theremin too because that's sort of you know the go-to instrument for that client kind of slidey eerie sound and so but the saw it is a
1: very similar it's a very similar sound yeah like when i heard it in the studio i was like oh it's there but so but if you hear it's you hear that you do kind of hear the uh you know whatever like the uh the bow on the saw if you listen in headphones like it's there's still like a real raw quality there which you wouldn't get with theremin
0: that whole part of of the game and that whole part of the soundtrack is so unsettling and so you (laughs) well done
1: (laughs) that's you know people uh that's a common comment i've read on youtube that it's uh slightly disturbing and that's uh that is a great compliment (laughs) i did my job
0: yeah for sure
1: (laughs) that's also one of my favorite fights in the yeah it's 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 quite different so
0: yeah it really is and you way back a while ago you mentioned the music of Bach and counterpoint and stuff and you've got this incredible organ this huge sounding organ that you used late late in the soundtrack and I don't want to spoil anything story-wise but that organ is just incredible and it's playing absolutely the sort of monumental music that you expect an organ to play (laughs) Mm -hmm. so that must have been a lot of fun to write
1: yeah so that tune was the first um two minutes of that final boss we'll try and avoid spoilers but i'm sure at this point it's maybe a. but the first two minutes uh of that final boss tune are were basically the first thing that i had written after the first game i probably had started writing it before the first game came out because we knew that there was going to be a sequel and um and it was we knew that we knew the sequel was coming out in 2018, so we got to get on it. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so I I knew that it was just more of me just kind of just being like a, a bit of a, a shit disturber in some senses. It's almost a cliche to use this big organ sound for a last boss or for the end of a end of a film, and uh, so I was just kind of like, you know what? I want to do this. I want to make an organ thing, which is so ridiculous and over the top that no one ever wants to do this again (laughs) some people are going to have to look for another idea Mm -hmm. (laughs) which you know it's like i hope people keep using the organ it's great and that was but that was kind of my like at the time i was like okay let's well how can we make this just so so extreme and so that was that organ thing happened early on and i also knew that i wanted to do um uh the double big band in stereo um that was kind of inspired by this great um, Duke Ellington Count Basie album where they each one of those bands is on is in one headphone and they kind of play off each other. And it's really neat. And then also there's that the uh, there's another one of the old uh, silly symphonies or merry melodies with the there's the classical island and there's the jazz uh, jazz island. And, you know, there's like it's like a Romeo and Juliet thing with a fiddle and a saxophone. But then, they're you know, they're they're lobbing. Classical notes at the jazz players, and the jazz players are loving jazz notes at the classical island. So it's kind of like a fight. So I was kind of uh, inspired by that, and we had kind of tried. I did that a bit on one hell of a time from the first game. It occurred to me, I think, a little late in the process, like, oh, it'd be fun to make this like a stereo big band sort of fighting back and forth. So I I wrote it, but we used this. You know, we used the same band on both sides and just kind of like multi tracked it. And I don't think it it didn't sound it didn't quite come off the way that i sort of wanted to like it sounds it sounds cool it's fine there's two you know two drum parts still but it, it just was not it was lacking something some sort of heft there so so that was the other thing i really wanted to do i wanted to properly do two full-size big bands in stereo for the final boss sometimes working together sometimes really like rubbing against each other in like a, a dissonant kind of way sometimes um you know throwing shots back and forth um, and that's another track too which is really fun to listen to in in good headphones because you really you really hear the stereo uh effect there but yeah that track like the between the organ and the the big bands it's just like massive. So like another fun thing I wanted to do is I just wanted one part of the game that had, cause we had so many musicians. Uh, I think there's about a hundred, there's not quite 120, but um, I wanted one part of the game where we just featured every single player. So that, that final chord of that, that whole last boss sequence is the C sharp uh, major triad. And every single musician on the soundtrack is playing it. And it's just this wall of sound and it sounds, uh, it's, cool. it's quite funny sounding but uh yeah so that that entire yeah it was just like what can we do to make this last boss tune like really over the top and it's also it's quite common in in games to have uh the final boss tunes in a in an odd time signature that also happens and a lot of Zelda stuff they're like 13 and 17 like there's some pretty wild pretty wild things I didn't want to get too I mean there's a point where it gets like we only have like three hours in the studio, but uh, so you know. But a lot of it is in five four, which was just also my tribute to classic, um, you know, final bosses in games. Sure, wow. Bit of odd time signature, yeah.
0: Yeah, wow. That that's I didn't even pick up on that, but wow, that's that's so cool. So if the I don't know if there's gonna be a third you know, DLC for Cuphead, but I don't know how you're going to top that. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of hope there isn't in yeah. that if I'm expected to do uh, something more than that. but
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I know you really got thrown in at the deep end when you did the music for original Cuphead. And were there any things at all, any skills that you had picked up writing the, the soundtrack for the first game that you were able to use in this one or anything that made things a little bit easier for you?
1: I mean, definitely, what you know, the actual writing of, particularly the big band scores, um, you know, just being able to manipulate the voicings and get them how I wanted to sound, and um, that like more technical, I suppose, kind of things. Uh, I definitely was a lot more confident going into the whole thing, and uh, you know, when we on the first game we had that first, there was we had a rehearsal before the the sessions, and I was just like. Sweating and uh, you know, like, is is this going to be that? Was when most of the players saw the charts for the first time and were like, "Uh, Are these these tempos correct? (laughs) Um, but this time I was, you know, I was a lot more confident in what was there and I knew that it was going to be challenging, but so there was, I learned a lot of technical things and I definitely gained a lot of confidence, but it's still, I think, as as I mentioned earlier, the challenge is still, I think, coming up with a solid, solid, like as good of a melody as, as. you know you can come up with and that was kind of that was still the most important thing was to make the tunes um to not just like i felt like i really scraped by on a lot of the tunes on the first game and this one i'm really happy with the way everything turned out and there's you know very little that i would you know listen, listening back to you now there's always small things that i was like oh, i would maybe do that differently but yeah uh, even now I, there's a, enough distance from it that i i can listen to it and say yeah that's good i wouldn't wouldn't change that
0: yeah, that's awesome. What's it been like to hear other ensembles playing the music from Cuphead? I mean, there was a big concert in London not too long ago that featured music of Cuphead. Um, that must mm. have been amazing.
1: I mean, it's, it's very humbling and quite gratifying. It's nice that it's, you know, it's nice that that music is uh, reaching people and that people are enjoying listening to it. And the band, you know... Uh, from an educational standpoint like a music education standpoint it's i get a lot of emails saying like my six-year-old wants to play trumpet because of cuphead or high school kids who say like i we, we bought some of your charts and we're going to play them in in jazz band in high school wow. so i mean that's that's really like it's nice that there's big pro ensembles in some cases uh like what happened in london like that want to do the the concerts but i think it's more gratifying that there are young people who are sort of discovering this music through Cuphead and um, are wanting to just, you know, even just listening to it is great listening to classic going back and listening to the influences or wanting to pick up an instrument um, is really, you know, it's a uh, it's extremely humbling. So
0: yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. Do you have any plans at all to write another soundtrack? I mean, this, <laughs> these two have taken years and years of your life. Um, are you ready to sort of take a break? Or have you got any projects going on and kind of in the back burner?
1: Uh, not really. I mean, nothing. There's a few potential things that have come up. But you know, this year in particular is already the gigs are back. You know, as of as of this spring, every like floodgates have opened and, All of the things are back. So my year is already filling up with a lot of performance work, which is great. Uh, but you know, I don't know if I would take on any major projects uh in the in the immediately near future, but I would like to do more writing for sure. I'd like to do something very different than I don't want to I would prefer not to keep doing the same thing either. Like I like want to branch out and and do some other things, but I would definitely like to do more writing. And and if I don't know what plans MDHR has next, um, but if they wanted me to be involved, I would, uh, very happily continue, uh, working with them. So that, I mean, I, I, I should say like, it's pretty remarkable to have such a, um, supportive company. I mean, all of those ideas that I had, like, I want two big bands for uh, a five minute tune. That's going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> they were like, great, go, you know, go for it. Um, they were, you know, working for them is, is a really fantastic because it's they're just so supportive of of you know kind of letting me do my thing and uh and i i know that that they you know will support whatever ideas i have so
0: yeah that's awesome well i i would love to hear what you do next for games and chris it's been so much fun to talk with you about this i i love your soundtracks and it's just so interesting to Look under the hood and see the whole incredibly involved process of, of just bringing it to life. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you for uh, for the interview. Always a pleasure.